0: Over the last 40 years, research has been growing to emphasize the importance of physical touch for human beings of all ages. Touch has been shown to support the healthy growth and development of infants and young kids. And as adults, studies show that physical platonic touch lowers blood pressure, reduces stress hormones like cortisol, increases feel-good hormones like oxytocin, and much more. Humans really do seem to depend on physical touch for wellness, and for wholeness. But touch has been in decline in modern America even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Among some groups and populations, different kinds of platonic physical touch is feared, disdained, or even considered taboo. Our guest today has been on a mission to help people reclaim platonic physical touch, intimacy, and physical closeness for themselves. He believes that these forms of deep interpersonal connection are not only healthy for us, he believes that touch can help dismantle racism. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We are very excited to be joined today by Aaron Johnson. He's a facilitator, public speaker, and touch specialist who uses deep connection, intimacy, and closeness to Blackness to dismantle racism. Aaron is the co-founder of both Holistic Resistance and Grief to Action, organizations and movements that hold the stories of Black people around internalized racism and the experience of being what he calls chronically undertouched. He is also an artist, a teacher, a mentor, singer, photographer, filmmaker, and minimalist using all the tools available to him to interrupt oppressive systems. Aaron, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: It is a gift to be here. So powerful to be here.
0: So Aaron, you described yourself as a touch specialist, and I'd love to start by asking you quite simply, what is a touch specialist? What do you do? And maybe you could tell us a little bit more as well about how you came to find yourself focusing as you do today on touch.
1: I still appreciate that. I think one of the first steps of being a touch specialist is to broaden the idea of touch. I think it's uh, kind of the experience I had when I first um, heard the idea of being an artist. I thought of being an artist as someone that paints on a you know a canvas. And I remember the first time I went to CalArts and I saw performance art, installation art. I saw all these ways of art that's expansive. I think touch is the same way. A touch specialist is not just hands on another skin. That's very important. And it's true That is touch. But touch specialist looks at the entire environment, it looks at the earth, your feet, the animals around you, um, the energy around you, touch specialists assess the entire environment. And tries to create a space that's safer for a human being to be a human being and it's kind of shocking with all the convenience how many times convenience this kind of chips away at some of our human um uh, needs um so there's oftentimes we like, big progress you know vehicles or computers or anything else these are all amazing technologies but oftentimes they're at the cost of our touch of our human experience and so a touch specialist is someone that slows down their reality just enough or even a lot in some cases to support us remembering what it means to be human and to be connected to other humans. And so a touch specialist that's focused on anti-racism or from that lens is takes that awareness that some folks are targeted more so than others um, to eliminate this piece around touch, which could activate a lot of other pieces of uh, putting them at risk. And so a touch specialist is really kind of, in, in so many words, a kind of part more accurately as an artist, as a person that looks, stays creative, And it stays emergent in their practice of reaching for other human beings.
0: Yeah, so there's more there than just the the physical, like human to human touch, as I'm hearing it, Aaron. There's contact, as you said, with the earth, with the environment. So there's really a deep sense of like interconnectedness. And I and I, you know, you mentioned um, as an artist, kind of views things more uh, holistically, which is a a key word that's in the the word holistic, which we'll talk about momentarily. But, uh, what I'm sensing is that there's a lot of, um, energetic kind of like weaving, observing and connections that are being made to how life and, and quality of life. And I think you even mentioned conveniences, um, maybe disconnecting us from, connection to things that are very natural and inherent to the human experience that maybe we don't get to have as ordinarily as we should. Uh, uh, something that you do, I know, is is connecting like feet to to the earth itself um, and, and the importance and the, the power of that for people who maybe don't experience it at all or or as often as as human beings have historically. So it sounds uh would you say that there's a real interconnectedness to the ways in which you're trying to help people Touch and be touched, both literally but also uh, figuratively and and holistically.
1: Completely, I think that if we only focus on one hand holding the human hand, which is important exclusively, say, okay, now your touch plan is complete. I feel like that's a, a big miss for someone that's really trying to find ground and trying to find healing that human beings are meant to touch other human beings, and we're meant to touch a whole lot of other things on this planet that helps us ground in. So it's making sure we have a more this observation of what we actually what actually works in our nervous system,
0: yeah. so if we could, let's talk about the the physical platonic touch. i'm I'm really interested mm-hmm. in that, and I think mm-hmm. for a lot of us, it's actually a very foreign and maybe unsettling idea to be in physical contact with other people. maybe um whether it's like family members or friends or colleagues, or even, you know, goodness forbid, a, a stranger, someone you just met yeah. and and physically. Yeah platonically consensually touching them. Um, uh, you know, maybe some of our listeners just kind of like got a shiver and reached for the hand sanitizer in this, you know, (laughs) COVID-19 era in which we're living, but it's very, it's very important and it really matters. So could you tell us about, first of all, I guess, what is, what is platonic touch? Is it just non-sexual consensual physical contact and maybe some of the forms of touch that you use in groups? And then we'll talk a little bit about like the, what you've witnessed in terms of the importance of these practices for people.
1: I, I so appreciate that. So, one of the things I find around touch that is somewhat limiting is the idea of like there's platonic, there's non platonic. And mm. that's true. That's kind of the, the container we've been given, but there's probably like a, a hundred variants in between. You know, platonic and non-platonic, that we can kind of progressively get closer, closer to sensual. And there's times where today, rubbing my tips of my fingers is platonic, and tomorrow it might be more arousing for a variety of reasons, depending on who is, positionality, where I'm at emotionally. So we got to understand that. I think this is a very fluent and interactive and a practice that takes some attention. So we can't just say, every time you hold my hand, it's always platonic. But what we want to name is that it's really about being in our bodies and going, wow, platonic touch today for me is... Right, and what is that yeah. for me right now? And I get to I get to define it. It's not necessarily like just always the environment around me, like uh, my teacher or my environment. So that's not platonic. Well, for me, it actually might be right. So in the context of just redefining this idea of platonic and non-platonic or sensual or not sensual, is something that feels. Um, just I want to name that kind of as a nest to build this conversation. Is like we're going to be playing around with some of those like um, binaries a bit, just because I think when we start to engage with folks in a healing journey. There's a lot of nuances that come up, but in the context of of, of building a touch plan, and we call building a t- comprehensive touch plan, we want to talk about um, trauma stories. These are, are big trauma stories or, or, or small trauma stories, and trauma stories also can be a kind of a cultural trauma story so if you come in a very conservative christian home like i was raised in um any kind of touch um any kind of sensuality was looked at as almost like you're just about to go to hell forever so in that become in that context it's really it kind of built up this way of like touch was associated with like dying and going to hell forever and so there's a level of of healing and reclaiming and just noticing um what stories we're already holding around touch another piece is to consider is positionality i say positionality is more of our language we use in holistic resistance in in our communities is that if i'm a black male right as much as the christians will say if you do too much touch you can go to hell in certain conservative groups hollywood also says as a black straight male there's certain kind of tender touch i cannot participate in It, it almost is like it's almost like if I'm more aggressive in my sexual nature, that that's actually more platonic in a sense of that's normalized. If I'm tender, softly touching, that's almost like, um, will even be almost as a radical or inappropriate, inappropriate. Mm. So when I talk about touch, particularly in the United States, I really have to track the profound messaging that I have received. that I see happening around our culturally. And so for me, I look at, um, platonic touch. As a self-defined practice, that one almost has to heal, practice, heal, practice, because the United States is so effective at 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 hurting us around being human, especially around touch with each other. And so, for me, I think it's that kind of rhythm of really tracking. Go, this is platonic, but this is also some healing to do around it, because I've been so skewed, oftentimes in this very effective propaganda culture, to just be thinking that this is like so 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 like inappropriate and it's actually one of the most appropriate things so platonic touch for me is variations but i will say that it's really allowing me to track the consent that i want to have of my own body and spirit and, and really track what that looks like outside of the kind of conditioning and then reaching in front of the person in a skillful way going what is what is that what is that um platonic experience for you today and that's really important so i'll pause there but that's kind of some of the weaving that we've merged into as we started trying to build comprehensive custom touch plans for folks
0: I really appreciate you breaking down the false binary and helping us to understand the fluid nature of something that can be referred to as either platonic or not platonic. But like you said, can vary from person to person, from one day to the next, is evolving, requires witnessing, deciphering, understanding, and like you said, healing and practicing, healing and practicing. So I'm getting the sense that this, it's not a... uh, it's not like a form of um, like exposure therapy where you're kind of forcing people in a room to hold hands with one another and sing "Kumbaya" and you know we are the children and and everything will be okay. There's a real intimate personal process that requires some examination, as you said, Aaron, around um, not only the various either either big T traumas or small T traumas, cultural trauma stories um, that that we're all exposed to, but like you said yourself the profound messaging is the the language that you use to have, uh, that have conditioned you to think or uh, believe that certain forms of touch are, are acceptable or unacceptable that are um more valued or not valued and and based on the positioning uh, of your of your identities you started to mention that um your organization holistic resistance, which is a black led organization and a movement that you co-founded, which believes that ending oppression and healing the trauma of oppression is a holistic practice. And I found this to be really interesting. I heard you starting to allude to it earlier, but the, the, the mission statement, if you will, of holistic resistance says we are holistically oppressed and therefore we must holistically resist What does it mean? I think you were starting to answer this, but what does it mean to be holistically oppressed? Is it about witnessing the the complexity and the nuances to our our conditioning around not only touch, but but oppression writ large? Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Totally. Yeah. So I think one of the things I realized is that I had these like images in my mind of like, people fighting oppression were like marching, and that's correct. Or People fighting oppression were like in the courtroom, and that was correct. But I realized that I did miss a big chunk of ways in which oppression was being dismantled. And so I, I realized it through natural school and exposure that um, oppression was hitting me in a much more subtle and holistic way. So a comprehensive oppressive structure. And so a, a slight context of how that helped me understand is that I have dyslexia and so dyslexia has made um particularly in the 90s um middle school and high school pretty challenging and expectations of teachers of me actually going into the world and doing things productive and, and their mind of productive um was very slim me going to prison was very high and i say that because the classroom which i have a lot of education in my family i appreciate the the labor of teachers i work with them often is an environment where sometimes it feels like we're here to help you. It feels like it's a safe place, but it's all these levels of oppressive practices, of lack of 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 freedom for your mind to move, that are just in the air as normalized. And so, when we talk about oppression, we look at those key places. And a good example of like tracking, well, how is opp- oppression holistic? Well, I look at some of the basic human needs as a as a human, and I look at how effective the United States has kind of really just tracked some some levels of of oppression, housing, right. We do a soft Google search, not even hard. You'll see a comprehensive effort for land ownership and housing constantly being eroded out from under specifically targeted to black-bodied people, right? And so we look at these strategic effective ways that um, communities and houses have been defunded or limited of resources that were were um willfully given to other folks, particularly white folks in the United States. We see this like generational deterioration. It's not mean we can't make up the gap, but we can just see that. Oh, housing, real estate. That's a space. We can just dip over to education, right? We don't have to do a hardcore either either. Look at education. You can see a, a clear through line. I have a picture of my grandfather. He died at 96 years old. I have a picture of him in fifth grade in a segregated uh, a segregated all black school in Midwest. I think it was like Oklahoma. Now I wanna say that. I could see how they were disfunded, how the teacher, the principal, the shelf, everything was all in one. They didn't have a whole lot of access to education. So the parallel universe is that next to them, someone else's grandfather had a school that had 10 times the resources, more support. It doesn't mean that all the schools were underfunded at that time, but I would guarantee you my grandfather was and many of the black folks were. So education is a space. where We see this kind of cohesive space where, where black folks are oftentimes just targeted in that way. And then I was dropping to more of the the kind of... um the uh the uh emotional powerful propaganda cinematography cinematography i love films i love documentaries and in that context when i start studying films i start looking at the stories that are able to go into the world and kind of shape our perspective of ourselves and how powerful those cinematography those films are and i say that not lightly but i i I have a workshop and it kind of emphasizes a lot of 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 how powerful the holistic oppressive can be and when i say you know if I just say two black men, cis black men sit down, and one holds his hand out, another one holds it, and the one that starts to share his heart, just a, a, a tender experience. And, and while holding the hand of another black man, these are just black men just listening to each other. And the other black man is just simply listening, and, and and maybe one begins to cry and one just listens. That is not a radical behavior. He didn't grow horns, he didn't fly away, he didn't chop his head off. He simply held another black man's hand. And gave him attention for a couple of minutes. As as simple as that is, it's ungoogleable. It's ungoogleable. You can't mm. find a three minute clip of that video. I didn't. And now, if I say to you, um, how hard would we find a black man shooting another black man to death? How hard would be some black man dying slowly in public on camera? That's googleable. I mean, not only Googleable, there are hundreds of videos available. Now, one is very much inhumane in so many ways. To see Mm. someone die slowly and to see, but the one that's humane, right? The one that's, the the simple act of being close to each other should be Googleable. The the theory is that that everything's Googleable, right? I think a young man back in the day, like 10 years ago, Googled how to make atomic weapon on Google. But how in the world is hard to find? human activities because it's boring i don't think it's that boring every time i do it in public people get shook so i don't think it's that boring so the idea is that there's a specific reason why simple human these brothers aren't nude they're not rubbing oil into, they're simply listening to each other why is that on Google? that is how that's how holistic oppression can pressure you is that normal behavior that's humane becomes almost radical almost because inappropriate. And so holistically oppressing someone, is you, it's not, that's not on billboards, that's in the air. It's expected, it's expected. And so for me, when I look at the context of holistically oppressed, it's that culture environment. No one, no one ever said to me, don't you ever go into public and thoughtfully hold another black man's hand and listen to him thoughtfully, and don't you ever not cry. They did it in all little pieces. They attack the tears with little pieces. They attach masculine little pieces. By the time it's all assembled, holistically Mm. assembled in your body, you don't even realize you have no attention to actually listen to another black man and, and just be with him or another man. I know a lot of men are like, I'm not even black and that's freaking me out right now. I agree. But you look at the kind of propaganda machine that we have targeted to us from MTV all the way now to TikTok, it is a through line. We have a couple of interruptions. We got Prince and we got Dennis Rodman. We got a couple of guys that interrupted it a little bit. These hmm. were guys radical, unstable. No, Dennis Rodman was just like 20 years ahead of his time. If he started hmm. today, they'd be like, oh my goodness, I'm watching NBA now. You know what I mean? So I, I, I say it's because it, it, these behaviors are not normalized and not disrupted unless someone slows down and says, wait a minute, I'm a human. He's a human. And what's also interesting, I'll say, I'll, I'll end here. I also say it's also powerful. When you leave the United States and you go to the rest of the world, men holding hands, walking, touching is common. It is common. It is not even, it's like it's a silly thing to even feel feelings about it. So I just want to yeah. name that this is not exclusively to America, but America is, is in the front of the list here. So I realize that this might feel different for folks that are not in the United States, but in the United States, in the bubble I live in, it's amazing. How this trauma story plays out or getting up in So thats that's that's how holistic could show how holistic oppression could show up. It, it it comes up in pieces and assembles itself in our hearts. That'll be a good mm-hmm. summation of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it took it took my breath away just describing that. And it's, yeah, the these ideas, Aaron, like normal behavior, something that is normal behavior being made out to be profane or becoming profane because of its non-existence in a culture is a radical idea. And you you took several questions out of my mouth because you answered them already, which is you know, the importance of things like um, not only representation, but how the arts and creativity and self-expression play into this as, as a part of holistic resistance. And that's where I'd, I'd like to go next with you. Um, and you started to name some of the forces that that are part of this holistic resistance in the face of the holistic oppression. Uh, I know you're an artist, you're a singer, you're a creator. you mentioned your love of film. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how the, uh, creative and expressive side of things as someone who, you know, considers himself to be a writer through and through my heart of heart at the end of, at the end of the day, how does the, not only the, uh, media representation factor in, which is really important. And the, you know, the idea of something being ungoogleable really struck a chord with me personally. How do you use, um, with, you know, with, with your team, with yourself, But also with others that you're working with and facilitating and teaching and speaking with the arts and creative and expressive arts as a form of holistic resistance.
1: Totally. There's a phrase that's almost now a mantra I said early on in holistic resistance. I said, stay creative while taking on the impossible. I don't know if I go through a workshop without mumbling, singing, screaming that phrase. Or just saying it like right now, and I think it's, it it speaks to the earlier question you said before. You said you know talk about you know platonic touch versus non touch, t- platonic touch versus non platonic touch, and I said you know one of the things I've noticed is that it's not that binary. It's all these pieces in there, and that's the, that's the artist brain in myself. So first of all, just how I walk into a question, walk into a room, I'm constantly having my artist's creative mind going. Secondly, I find that creativity alone oppression hates. You know, I think when, if, if, anytime you're going to see someone burning books or anything else, creativity is that nuance that requires oppressive forces to adapt. The last thing that oppressive wants to do is work. They want to keep it simple. You know, kill them while they're young, start them while they're young. They don't want to wait until you're 14 to start marketing. They get, get you at, at negative one years old before they start trying to tell you how to be. And so for me, I realized that creativity is, um, you know, moving your heart and your mind and the energies around you to be unpredictable to oppressive forces. And so for me, that mm. goes up in all kinds of ways. That can be a performance art piece. It can be a question you drop into a room. It can be a song you sing when you're terrified, when you're feeling like you have to march or something, your life is on the line. Creativity is allowing yourself to, to really um, um, not let uh, uh, the, the, I feel like creativity, I could describe it as, as part of the heartbeat of your spirit. I feel like it's a way in which it drives um, the most beautiful parts of yourself into the world. And I think what oppression tries to do is make it as a mono, right? Like, all the black people do whatever. That's not creative at all. All the black people go to jail. All the black people are violent. These are these are not creative observations at any level, right? But that's kind of how we know oppression's there. Creativity shows up because we want to see this individual in front of me right now. We want to see this individual in front of me right now. That's creativity. That's the artist. And so, as a photographer, I love taking pictures, but really, I love people, right? I love taking pictures of people. Like 90% of my photography, and I was doing it full time, was of people. When I make films, it is about people. When I make art, it is about people. No surprise, this brother's into people. I love people, they're interesting. Dogs are great. I raise chickens, I raise ducks, I raise turkeys amazing beings. I even eat some of them. I eat meat. I understand. I love a lot of things that are living and are in the process of dying. I love plants. I love trees and people. People are are really important to me. And so for me, when I look at creativity, I look at creativity for me as a way to help people interact, dismantle systems that make it hard for us to interact and see each other. And I love film. If there is a video or film, that's one of the most powerful means I, I use right now. But I, I love writing as well. I, I have even my dyslexia. I have a journal and journal and journal. People may be sure to read it, but I can read it. I love it. I think most of the important things happen in my journal this morning. I woke up at five o'clock writing. So for me, I think it's so important that um, loving, there's a lot of things that are, are painful about CalArts. But one thing I love about CalArts is that where I graduated, is it allowed me to look at creativity more dynamically than I ever have in my entire life. And I really appreciate them for that. So for me, I don't know if I could even be in a place of resistance effectively if creativity wasn't foundationally a part of it. And I remember I had a professor, I'll land here, a professor that said, Aaron, you're doing too much. You're a singer, you're a photographer, you're a filmmaker. You just gotta figure out where your lane is, right? And I never forget this black artist. I was in graduation and, and kind of we're going to all these special artists and that artist was, uh, I loved him. Good people so at the same time, he wasn't seeing me as an artist. And I remember this this black artist, I can't remember his last name was Green. He's a pretty famous artist in Los Angeles. And I sat at his table kind of a little bit like, ah, we're going around all these artists getting our kind of interview. And he says, and I kind of just kind of mumbled something so he, I, this guy said to me, he was, oh, oh, Aaron, you don't got to stop. But don't listen to people that have half the amount of talent you have. Just don't listen to them, Right. You can be an artist, you can be a facilitator, you can be a speaker. He said, what's important is you track your energy, Aaron, but don't smother your magic. Just track your energy. And I was like, okay, I'm walking away, thank you. But I appreciate his voice because if I would've listened to that professor uh, before him that was like, Aaron, you gotta be the singer. Be the singer. Aaron, you gotta be the photographer, be the photographer. And he, what he was missing, he, he was trying to get to the point of like, don't overwhelm yourself and burn out and be like, not good at any of those things. But I think the other artists did a good job of, airing your energy, track your energy. And that is kind of the core force that feeds everything. And that was some of the best advice I've gotten it's been, almost, it's been almost 20 years, almost 20 years since that conversation. And I'm so glad that my, my, my bio reflects that thinking. So for me, creativity um, is foundational. It's upfront, but it's also subtle in the background of holistic resistance.
0: Yeah, and the the point that is driven home for me, Aaron, among the many that you've just made, is there's some comfort that other people seem to have in being able to assign one label onto yeah. another person, whether they're an artist or not. And, and it feeds into, there's a, a narrative and a story in entrepreneurial circles and like hustle culture around like, like choose your thing, do your one thing. And what I heard you just say flies in the face of that, right? Creativity is something that oppression hates. Creativity is unpredictable to oppressive forces. And therefore, being unpredictable, it can be both uncomfortable for people to not be able to maybe compartmentalize or perfectly label in in their own relationship to the person or the thing that they're doing, but it is also uh, fluid, responsive, and dynamic in how it responds to circumstances and conditions, especially those of oppression, which is a yeah. something i have never personally thought of before so i thank you for that mm. Mm. you mentioned your you mentioned your grandfather earlier and i understand doing yeah. a little research on you Aaron that your your parents i think were both your parents pastors
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah and it, it seems like they really instilled in you based on another interview that i listened to that uh, you and your siblings from a young age the importance of finding and using your voice and i wonder if you'd feel comfortable yeah. telling us a little bit about your upbringing and how you know whether directly or indirectly your lineage, your ancestry, your family, your parents uh, have have inspired you to be a pretty dynamic force of giving and change making.
1: Mm. Profound. It is fundamental. I so appreciate you asking that question. And i i I travel a lot, and a lot of people meet me by myself, either on a stage or in a song circle or in a in a in a, in a workshop. They don't always meet my four other siblings that, that I uh, adore, love and have shaped who I am and still shape who I am and my mother and I say my mother a lot. My father probably more significant in shaping me in a lot of my um kind of core ways that are foundational but my mother um shaped my father, right? <laughs> the way in which um by the time I met my dad he was already in full full um evolution of my mother and so there's a way that um, without him, I would be um, in, a, in a very serious situation as far as being a full human being. And my mother, I would say, is the lineage that is needs to be named in this. If I don't have two hours, I'll I'll, I'll do it in 15 minutes. My mother raised five children. I'm an honest middle. I have two older siblings and two younger siblings, um, a younger sister, younger brother, younger older brother, older sister. Um, and my mother did a lot of things amazing. But one of the things I'll say that is significant is that she was a pastor. She was a senior pastor. So she taught and mentored. My father how to preach, you know, by the time they got they got preaching, they were like, oh yeah, because he's the man, he's a leader. And my mom didn't say much about it, but he was clear that my mom was the one that taught him how to speak. Was well, she taught all of us how to speak, we were exhausted. We were annoyed with how she trained us how to speak. And now as an adult, I am so grateful that I had a world-class communicator as a mother that was disguised as a mother, and taught all of us how to present on a casual level and also on stages. Um, and so, for me, what was was really important is my mother taught me a couple of key things I can distill down, and that is that you need to stay connected and back in your siblings, specifically the one that's right under you. And not that we—I'm sh- close to all my siblings, but it was a tradition in our household that speaks to the thinking that my mom put into her children is that when. A child came home. So I had a little sister under me named Alilia. She's the one that's right under me. When Alilia came home from the hospital, just king born, my mom just had a baby. She comes in to her living room and she's saying, I need you to come in, come in, come in my room. I go in her room and it's just me and Alilia and her. And she says, This is Alilia. This is your little sister. And for as long as you are living, you support her. You back her. This is your responsibility to support. And she will support you too, but your responsibility, I was going you know right now, this is day three or day four, or whatever she got, to, it starts now. And I'm like young. I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm 40. So my sister is like three. I'm like, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not that old. And I'm very clear. And I remember my mom was hilarious. When my mom's was conservative. I've been watching, I was watching her take care of my, of my responsibilities. So she's nursing and she's tending to my, and I remember one day I came and I said, I'm upset. He's like, why are you upset? Like, I said, because I want to nurse my sister. And my mom was like, oh, honey, you can't nurse. You can't nurse your child. How are you going to do it? Just stand up blame mom. And I looked at my neighbor, like, right here. I got a nurse around my <laughs> navel. And I threw that because that's just in my brain, in my little young mind, as I was down to back my sister. Now I'm 40. I'm still down to back my sister. What I mean by that, what does that mean philosophically? My mom wanted us to be close to each other, not so be confused about the first folk we learned how to back and what it means to back other Black folk. what it means to back your family, what does it mean to disrupt the internalized material that siblings will fight over siblings, fight each other and attention, that we can give attention to each other, mm. that we are our own best medicine as a family. And so we sang together, we traveled together. We sang in prisons together. We sang, you know, and, and I remember we sang, we sang uh, in a parking lot at Denny's in uh, Payson, Arizona at like one o'clock in the morning. And I remember that moment. This is the kind of speaks to my mom's, like, I don't know. It's like magic hand that she has as many magical things she does is I remember I have a siblings, a group called Five Aces. If you ever want to find some vintage Five Aces, you can get these videos, but we're out at one o'clock in the morning and we had a dear friend of ours came to see us, that somehow that's one time they could meet us. I don't know why we're at One well, o'clock in the Morning, and she came out and she was like, oh, our children sing for her. We're like, mommy, come on. I'm like, I'm like a senior in high school. Like, I'm, I'm too old for this. Like, And I got older, and we sang, and we, sang, and we sang, it was beautiful. It ended up really great. We sang for this, her in the parking lot. And we sang, and then she used to sing one more song, sing one more song. And then a truck pulls up, right? This truck pulls up and the guy comes up and goes, I was about to go do some harm to somebody. And I parked in a parking lot before I went and did that. And I heard you all singing. And I'm going home. I'm not gonna do what I was gonna go do. And he drives away. And my mom doesn't lose a beat. She's like, that's why you listen to me. You gotta sing. You don't feel like you sing. You don't remember who's listening. But that's not just a lesson. That's just a magic in which she wants to move into the world with, with, with her family, with her children. She's like, bring the magic. One o'clock in the morning. Bring the magic. If it's no one's looking, march in your living room doing your magic. No one got to see it, but the world will actually notice over time. And so for me, that is my mother. And I'll say in in landing my mother is that she is one of the folks that is determined for me never to give up, even when everyone else says it's impossible. Everyone else says it's impossible. She's like, no, it's not. We're going to take this thing on. I know you have dyslexia, Aaron. I know you're struggling in school. I know this is going to be juvenile delinquent. I know it all maybe your peer groups in the same category might be going to jail one at a time, but you're not. You're not. And this is why I how we're going to get there. And that was my mother's energy. And so I just really appreciate if we had 10 more hours, like I could talk about 10 more hours of stories of ways in which she interrupted the impossible for me. But there's no way that if I go on a stage, if I go in a space that my mother, my siblings are energetically right there. It's never one of me. And she's a perfect example of that. I didn't have the words holistic resistance or any language I had back in the day, but that she, she's, she's an embodiment of that. Um, and I, I was there just at a, a a concert meditation um, in February this year. And I just said exactly that on the record It's so good to say with most of my siblings standing next to me, uh, sitting next to me in that chair. It, it means so much of anyone that studies holistic resistance, grief to action, unrested labor, um, the cut project. It comes from a very similar source, a little dusty town called Phelan in Southern California and a mother that said, I'm raising these five children. I'm loving these five children and they feel her hands. They feel her voice every time they interact with any five of us or echoes of our work is echoing and I feel it. And that's my mother. Um, that's my mother. If we have more time, I about my dad, but I was in my dad. is foundationally important, but for, for time's sake, I'll breathe there because it's so important to note the shaping of my heart, which I'm really paying attention to right now in my forties, going into my 41st birthday next uh, month. I'm feeling this like deep observation of how was I shaped? how was I shaped? Mm. It's like a morning message, which I ask myself, I hold a clay ball, that I shake with my hands every morning and I go, how was I shaped? And that comes from my analysis of my family. So it's a whole lot there. For the sake of time, I'll breathe.
0: It's amazing how at this stage of life, I'm 37, just became 37 a few months ago. It feels like at this stage of life, developmentally, we start to look back and relitigate our childhood and upbringing in a different way. I don't know if it's because because biologically or developmentally, we we might be at an age where we're raising children, but even if we're not, there's this whole like kind of relitigation and uh, of our, of our upbringing um, and and childhood and the forces that reared us. And I know for me, becoming the age or passing the ages at which my parents became parents for the first time with me was a really wild experience, and being the the same age as, as my father and, and being exactly half of his age to, you know, when I was that he was, was a wild experience and kind of feeling like I could energetically embody him, even just imaginatively uh, what it w- must've felt like to be a father at that stage for, it, it was a very um, emotional and, and very cathartic and healing just, to, just by, just by myself, just on my own and listening to your stories, Aaron, more importantly, um, really inspiring and, and. You know, leader. The, what came through to me as I was listening is our Amer- a, a certain segment of American culture is a very, by which I mean, uh, uh, longstanding white dominant culture has had a very narrow view of what a leader is, of who a leader is. Not only what one looks like, but how one behaves, and what one, you know, the the acclaim, the fame, the status, uh, the wealth, the popularity, the esteem that one. Uh, I was going to say earns, but oftentimes earns, even though they haven't really earned it. And the the example that your mother set for you all just t- speaks to me of like a very powerful form of leadership that often goes unnamed and is, yes. and is yet so important and part of so many people's uh, lineages and legacies. And um, I really appreciate you naming that for us and, and sharing it with us. As we start to wrap up our conversation Aaron, uh those who are listening to our podcast won't be able to see that you're joining us from your car and um mm-hmm. and um that you're on the road and I I understand that you're yeah. on the road for for quite some time. Could you let us yeah. in behind the curtain a little bit with what you're doing right now these days and give us a little look behind the curtain about, you know, what life is like for you as this you know, multi-passionate, multi-creative, dynamic presence. What you're you're doing in work almost to say uh, in your work almost sounds trite at this stage. It is your work, but it almost sounds trite. This is I feel like it's a much bigger calling and mission that that transcends our typical definition of career. Tell us about what you're doing these days and and um, where you are joining us from in the world from.
1: Yeah, I am in Port Townsend, uh, north it's northwest. Washington. Um, in uh, it's, I'm in. A, I'm in a rest space, so I'm resting for the next. Well, for the last two days, and I have one more day of rest and writing integration. Um, and the tour is the cut tour. It's um, kind of sits next to unrested labor, and so there's kind of two containers I'm working with. The chronically untouched tour is me taking. I have four images. Um, three of those images are uh, black men hanging from trees, um, and they're kind of printed on canvas by four feet by um, maybe three feet by five feet. Um, and we I hang them in trees um, and then I bring people um, to come and notice what is it? What does it mean to notice evidence of the creation of the black brute? And what does it mean to notice that the creation of Black Brute is a a common way an effective way that we've erased touch from black men, that we've weaponized their bodies to the point that the mean having tender touch is such interruption to the meaningful human beings. And so that particular piece um is uh supported by the you know cutproject.org is is where that sits and, and gets meditated and held. And then I'm also doing consulting with orgs that I've been working with virtually for the last couple of years through Holistic Resistance. These are all very much woven together, but these are more like organizations that are trying to work on their DEI work or work on some conflict in their space or trying to get ahead of the conflict in their space in some cases. Um, and then I'm I'm doing a a kind of uh, uh, a reach interviews, interactions with Black folks, handpicking their hearts to be a part of the film so we're shooting a documentary film on the cup project and so that's kind of part of the kind of intimate one-on-one conversations that we're having through here all the way to the east coast will be in north carolina in july um and the last thing the <laughs> last thing we're doing the last thing we're doing or i'm doing is uh keynote speaking right so i'm speaking to groups about this topic, and so that is uh, fundamentally kind of the, the the accumulation of the tour. Um, and then when we have an opportunity, we do deep dives and song circles. So we kind of have a weekend where you might have a deep dive uh, or a song circle on a Friday, uh, a deep dive on a Saturday, and a workshop on a Sunday or a keynote speak on a Sunday. So we kind of you know pack our weekends that way, and then on a Monday, Tuesday. Monday to Thursday is more integration and rest and like podcast interviews or things like that. That's not so much intensity. So that's, that's what I'm on right now. You can go to holisticresistance.com. You can go to grief, to, um, uh, grief to action, um, .com. You can go to, um, the, uh, cut project.org. Any one of those spots you can track us on Instagram. We're constantly posting on, at holistic resistance so those are all places you can find us but the most important thing is that we're dismantling oppression wherever we are so that's that's probably more important than anything else but that's what we're up to and that's what we're doing right now
0: aaron johnson he is the creator of the chronically undertouched project and the co-founder of holistic resistance and grief to action as aaron said you can find out more at holisticresistance.com, dot com cut project.org what's the last one last one is it grief grief to action
1: yeah grief to action.com
0: grief to action.com. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on the new story as it was such a pleasure to speak with you. Good luck. Uh, take good care and can't wait to, to follow along and, and see where the journey takes you next.
1: It's an honor. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the new story is we hope you enjoyed what you heard today. You can always find us at the new including our full back catalog of interviews from throughout the year. Leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, especially to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It goes a long way in helping us find and share our work with new listeners. Until soon, dear listener, keep storying on. We'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.